Hello and welcome to PNN. I'm your host, Brooke Hines. It is Sunday, June the 6th, 2021. Welcome to our summer collection. We have a lot to talk about tonight. We are, we're going to be talking about talking about stuff. Tonight, I have Justin in Baltimore, uh, Twitter user, uh, stumbled across him as we were both wondering about talking about and digging into this new blacklist tool called bot sentinel so we've got a conversation on that we're also talking about unity we're also talking about the ins and outs of working with our uh, local and state parties and uh, you know a little bit about free speech and censorship all kind of rolled up into one happy bun. We also uh, discuss a really cool article that Justin did on AOC's Courage to Change pack and how how it runs and where the money goes and what what matters about that. So get that first up and then we have janine moloff with the justice report this week talking about the january 6th insurrection uh and uh a liberal view i guess you could say of speech implications of that event so stay tuned for that i'm just gonna Put this all in front of you and get out of the way because there's a lot of content following on behind. So I will see you on the flip side. And we're here with Justin in Baltimore. You can find him on Twitter at Justin in Bmore. And uh, we're here today. Justin is a consultant, political consultant, campaign manager, uh, and researcher. And we're here to talk about a couple of things that uh, that, uh, we kind of uh, had a meeting of the minds on. And one is this bot sentinel situation that everybody seemed to stumble upon a few days ago so um justin tell us a little bit about this this bot sentinel thing and what what the deal is yeah uh so uh, as uh i've been kind of noticing the uh as as i'm sure you have the many many people who have been posting that they have been found as uh problematic or um what was the other one disruptive disruptive uh yeah so i and and i said i just i I, i'm fascinated by data and i said "Hmm, that looks fishy now christopher boozy the ceo bot sentinel whatever uh he had me blocked like two years ago so Mm -hmm. so i had to go and find kind of track down the tweets here and figure out what was going on. Uh, so he announced probably a three or four days before uh, the Saturday hit where everybody started noticing that their scores spiked. He had announced that there would be changes upcoming. Uh, and he, of course, with this and anybody who can, who has tried to look into this can attest 
There is no verification. There's no transparency on this whatsoever. Uh, you're, you're told, don't even ask about your score because they don't want you asking about your score. <laughs> but, of course. Uh, to, to go back to this, um, that's so Saturday hits this, this past Saturday, which what was this past Saturday? Um, uh, what that was the 29th. Uh-huh. And we, so that's when I believe the changes happened because we saw different, um, scans of, of people who, who had scanned themselves. And within that time frame we were able to kind of say, okay, well, your score didn't spike here, so it didn't happen here. And we kind of figured out that Saturday was the day. Uh, also, conveniently, the same day he got blue checked. Wow. That, yes. is, that is absolutely remarkable. Now, so, one, one of the things that I noticed in one of your threads was you had a really good control group. You had people who had been away for yes, enough um, time between their two uh, uh, scores to offer a real good contrast for for the to you know because it this is a public profile so i don't you know i don't feel bad about using this one as an example here but the 2020 green party vice presidential nominee angela walker hadn't posted anything since uh, i believe since a third or fourth of may and then was you know, no responses, no likes, just off the account for a while, uh, which can happen with official Twitter and whatever. Uh, so that their score went from a three percent in whatever I believe it was. It was late April that it was searched before me to forty four percent, almost a fifteen fold increase. Unbelievable for an account that has not been tweeting about current events or politics lately, which was one of the, uh, one of the Christopher Boozy tweets that he, he mentioned, well, you know, uh, people who find themselves engaging in political topics may be, uh, may, may be subject to, uh, flagging. However, now I'm starting to see a couple more come in. I'm starting to see no- noted K-Hive trolls coming in with normal and satisfactory ratings, uh, known bots that are repeating and spamming the same phrases that people have put the screenshots together and they're getting normal ratings. So I, there's no way to believe this is not an attempt to decimate leftist, non-Democrat and Democrat-critical networks. I, I have to agree. Um, I I saw this you know, trending within my own uh, uh, cohort here on Saturday, and I did my own score. And whereas I had a 3% uh, rating as of October 25, 2020, now I'm at 51% and I'm disruptive. So I went from normal to disruptive. And yeah. uh, the flag... That is a very... By, by the way, that is a an astonishing spike mm-hmm. uh, because I'm, I'm trying to view these as percentage spikes. Uh, so how, you know, mine, mine uh, went over 300%. Mine wow. more than tripled. I was at like 24 and I went to 76. Wow. 
And I was at 24 mainly because I was plugging the previous article that I had written because when you are independent and you need to get the word out there, uh-huh. uh, sometimes you're going to send that link to a lot of people. Well, and, and and when you look at the search terms that they say are the ones that, that get you flagged, uh, some of the search terms in, in my profile were Joe Biden and Bernie mm-hmm. Sanders and Dem Party and cool, cool, you know, a lot like of those meaningless. Just, a lot of those are literally a, quote, snapshot in time. It's just going to show you some of the more common uh the more common results when they search for common two word phrases. Uh, I don't believe that there's actually any correlation with that and the problematic list, unless you hit a term. Uh If you hit a term, uh, like I I think some of the ones that uh, I I think force the vote, I think anything with, uh, anything that has to do with revolution, uh, any kind of revolutionary um, iconography, uh, uh-huh. that sort of thing. Um, I believe they're they're going after you know uh, defund the police movement. I, I believe they're uh, going after folks who are putting up a cab and hammer and sickle and all all that sort of anything that you could think of and just kind of imagine taking a top 100 list Uh of left Twitter terms, searches, phrases, hashtags, and putting that onto the disruptive list. And that's essentially what happened here. There's no way around these, these terms, uh, this list that it scans, because it's, as people have shown, this website is quite shoddy. Uh, the, the search terms that people search on it, uh, it's, it's more or less running through an Excel spreadsheet. That is the depth right. uh, that most people that, that are better with this stuff than I have said. This thing is hardly anything, and the only thing that you, that's actually there is your specific ledger, and then it just scrapes your profile for the information, etc., when somebody searches you. Now, Christopher Boozy, who started this in 2018, uh, claims in the bio right on the site that, that what he's looking for is inauthentic accounts or toxic trolls or foreign countries or organized groups manipul- manipulating the conversation. This is the same uh, kind of, of framing that another bot uh, uh app does and this is called botometer and so i ran my score through botometer and i got a it, it goes on a scale of one to five and i got a point six so i didn't even i didn't so even your break botometer has not changed right significantly or at all really and that matches percentage wise that matches about what my first uh bot sentinel uh score was now as we were talking about this, I, I had a thought about how this is coinciding with some other, and you started to mention this, that this is coinciding with some other uh, uh, dust-ups or kerfuffles uh, on the left and, and you know, with, within the Democratic left. Um, and I think I, that something kind of happened 
it, around the beginning of the year, around inauguration. And I think that this is something we see every time a Democratic president takes over from a Republican, especially a nasty Republican, because I remember this happening in uh, when Clinton took over from the Reagan-Bush years, is immediately there is a, once they're in office, there's a swing to the middle. Uh, and, and, and I think, you know, Biden was already going to do the swing to the middle and it just happened to coincide with the force the vote thing. So I have this theory that force the vote is masking and all of the kerfuffle over that and, and how there's, there's, there's been a lot of disunity with regard to force the vote. I think that that's not quite authentic. I think that that, that move to the right by the by the the party establishment they always do that it happens every every time we get a democratic president yep they got to lean towards the green that, and that's not environmentalism <laughs> we called it the the veal pen back in obama's administration uh that you, you know the instead of keeping his uh infrastructure to uh uh, organize people to support his policies. He just ditched that whole Obama for America thing, uh, his whole list, everything that had been so effective in getting him elected, and allowed uh, instead moved to this access based kind of model where if you played ball, you know, if you were part of an NGO like or a, an org, a progressive organization like SCIU, you know, like those kind of things uh, in Florida, it would be the Dream Defenders or uh, New Florida Majority, which doesn't exist anymore. But anyway, that's, that's a whole other thing. Uh, if you were <laughs> yeah. if you played Florida, Florida bo- Democrats are about to not exist anymore. Oh, the my God. Going. Oh, my God. But but if you played ball. Uh, you would get access, and if you didn't play ball, you were you were out. And so they called that the veal pen, so that nobody could actually ask real questions or 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 move policy to the left. You had to just accept what yeah. what they were putting in front of you. And actually, I think all those organizers on the ground during Obama's 2008 campaign, if they saw the policy that the White House was pushing once they got in. They've been pretty pissed off. Right. And groups so like Fire been, Dog this Lake. might have been a little less like a little less stupid and a little more cynical uh, mm-hmm. to get rid of that kind of apparatus. If you knew, hey, Citigroup is going to pick my cabinet and, you know, this whole thing's kind of a show. It's a dog and pony show. Uh huh. And people were starting to call that out. And that was the time when Rahm Emanuel comes around and says, uh, that the professional left is a, a bunch of effing our work, our darts, you know, like, like I just, you know, it, first of all, an incredible ableist slur, <clears throat> but, you know, to, to say that your allies who just got you elected were, you know, to, to slur them like that was just breathtaking. Oh, it, it, and it's, I believe that that was that was the donors calling and saying, you got to put a stop to this. 
And now what we have, what I think that, that came out of Force the Vote, so instead of the Rahm Emanuel-style professional left slur uh, and the other stuff they said, I think now what has emerged is this bogus red-brown alliance thing. Yeah, I've... I've not met uh, anybody actually uh, that would be treated with a degree of seriousness on the left in these, I guess, uh, left hive mind intellectual circles, so to speak, (laughs) that has said anything about that. And this is not to not to fault when look, if I'm going to go back to when. Uh, Bernie Sanders put put up the bill to end the Yemen war mm-hmm. and got Mike Lee as a co-sponsor. I, the, there is utility in, in working towards your goals. And if you can treat somebody like a useful idiot towards that, then that's a different story. Uh, but nobody is saying, I don't, I've never heard anyone on the left saying, Oh yeah, let's, let's go align with the Nazis. <laughs> And I've never, I, I just, I've never seen anyone be able to point to a place in history where that has been a thing that 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 had any kind of cultural significance, and definitely not any political or policy significance. Yeah, this is, and so this is. This sounds like it came from the the coordinated talking points that mm-hmm. get sent out. That. Uh, the people were to be smeared as, you know, oh, trying to push for this and that. Meanwhile, and, and I, I what, you, you brought up the whole Red Brown Alliance, and, and it kind of reminded me of the whole Jimmy Dore Boogaloo Boy thing. Uh-huh. And then uh, they, but here's the thing if, if you go back and watch, this guy was speaking and had, a dozen microphones in front of them. If the local news is covering them, what are you going to, are you going to go after them for platforming? Why is it only Jimmy Dore? That's a good point. That's Why a is it not point. whatever your local news station is? Cause I know those big fluffy mics with the, you know, the ABC, NBC, CBS logo were there. Uh-huh. Nobody's talking about them platforming this person. They have a lot bigger of an audience, especially locally. Uh-huh. And people, people overwhelmingly in this country, to about 60 percent, if I remember correctly, still trust their local news uh-huh. as the trusted source of information over anything else. And I track that every year that that study comes out. Wow. <laughs> so, and, and, and new media is getting there, but it's not there yet. Mm-hmm. But uh, Every year that comes out, that that comes out, I dig into that book because it's fascinating, um, and it also tells how far the left has to go to get these policies in front of people. Because it's about fifty-five to sixty percent, and it's stronger with the older generations. They they still trust their local news, even if they don't trust the national news. They still trust. They still trust uh, uh, the the local news anchors here in Baltimore. Uh-huh. Probably be like you know. Uh, somebody like Bob Turk or Marty Bass or Denise Coke or one of the, but they've been around literally since I've been a child. 
We have the same uh, local television news anchors and especially weather folks. We have the same group as when I was growing up in Florida, like a gajillion years ago. There's some of those people are like Tony Treadway. They're still around and it is comforting. It's like, you know, it's like chicken soup or muffins or something. You know them. They've been there forever. Yeah. And, and there's, there's a little turnover because it's a really nice job too. And they're not going to, they don't want to really leave unless they get something better. And if they, or maybe they, maybe they want to move and go somewhere else and that's why they leave. But otherwise the ones who do it, they stay there and they, they get that trusted moniker. They, because they've been around so long, even if the people feeding them the stories have changed and now it's a bunch of right-wing lunatics like Sinclair Broadcasting feeding them stories. Mm-hmm. And that's the problem. problem is who's writing your stories. Right. Well, with, with, with them. <laughs> one of the things that, that, that I think is, is interesting in, in talking to you is uh, your, your screen name on Twitter is uh, Justin comma unify the left and i think that right now we are in a moment where i don't think people even understand anymore what what we're talking about when we're talking about unifying the left so why don't you give us a sense of uh, of what you mean by that and um, yeah why it's important to you so i uh i really I've seen the trends and especially when I worked for the Democrats, I saw what their internal mechanisms and their plan was. And this this bears out across the country. Go look at where the Democrats are focusing, what races, congressional races, the Democrats are focusing in. Mm -hmm. Usually it's in richer, white, liberal leaning, but maybe centrist suburbs. And that is the Democrats focus right now. The the Democrats want the WASP class. They want white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. They want the Reagan Republicans. They actually had, for a while, had uh, talked about the Mitt Romney Democrats, people who would would swing vote over to Romney and back. And I find it really interesting that um, that when it's uh, going for those kind of Democrats, like Mitt Romney, then that's bipartisanship. But if you are that's reaching across the aisle, it's reaching across the aisle and it's and it's applauded. But if a left person reaches out to an anti-war Republican or or Republican who who has that libertarian uh, approach that would embrace a a civil rights expansion or protection, then that's considered then that falls under this under this red brown uh, uh kind of moniker like like it's it's not okay basically what they're saying is it's yeah, not it's okay, okay for the left <laughs> it's okay if you're part of the club uh-huh if you're not part of the club you will be smeared and castigated as an outsider and now i see this playing out with with uh, especially with um uh consultants and and political operatives here in florida I see this playing out as a as a weird little war that's going on where they're kind of ganging up on uh, where there are people who are 
embraced by the party and who embrace the party and they're going to war instead of you know trying to bring everyone together and unify them they're going to war with them and that kind of freaks me out i sort of feel like why would you yeah, even do that it's cause for concern and the reason is because they don't want you to be a part of democrats mm-hmm. they want they want to cater to the top i'd say Top five to ten percent of Americans. So the professional managerial class, as Crystal Ball, the PMCs. Yes, the PMCs, the wasps, the you know whatever you want to call it, the suburbanites, the the Karen, the Karens of the world. That's who they want. <laughs> the Karen vote. They want. They want the Karen vote. They really do. I, and this is this plays out. Uh, they keep and. and I've heard other activists tell me and other organizers tell me where they've gotten sent out to areas to canvas that they probably had no business to be canvassing there. As far as this is a waste of our time and our vote when we can be getting out the vote for a more condensed area, turning out working class people. Uh-huh. I literally canvassed Peter Angelos's door. Wow. The owner of the Baltimore Orioles. Wow. Wow. Yeah. As I literally knocked on that door. I worked in that that territory, which is it's like a small circle of mansions. I worked in that territory. That's absurd. It's absurd. For also, one, it's a lot of walking, let me tell you. Yeah, for one little in vote. The, and... In the Baltimore heat in the summertime. Uh-huh. God, that's, a, that's just absolutely bizarre and then on the other side of that you have the ngos that um what happens in florida is you've got ngos that are trying to only knock hispanic doors and only trying to knock um uh, puerto rican diaspora doors and what has happened in the last couple of cycles is they haven't understood the cultural they haven't had a really good grasp of uh, of what's going on culturally with with those demographics that are um, culturally conservative, and they've just assumed that if you knock these doors, that they're going to vote for Democrats, and they don't. They knock the doors and they turn them out, and they vote for Republicans. And surprise, surprise! Guess what happens if people if you offer people Republican light, they're going to choose full flavor, right? Right. Especially and, and if this, the culture is robust. But right. especially in Florida. Especially in Florida. Florida is, oh my, I have no idea how you take a 50-50 state and literally drop it to probably five, six, seven points red right now. Uh, I've, I've, I've got a, I had a lot of egos. Yeah, it's a lot of ego. It's a lot of... um. I, I should rephrase. I don't know how I would let that happen. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't understand. Well, okay. So, so I, there's, there's a key to it that people who don't live in Florida might not understand and it, or see, cause it's not obvious, but uh, the sugar industry and the, the Disney industry, the attractions uh, are, have been playing in the background 
with uh, funding the Democratic Party to the point where uh, functionally the party doesn't doesn't really have much difference from the Republicans because they're funded by the same people. They just keep it on the DL. Oh, I mean, that actually that's playing out with different industries. But you're absolutely right. The corporatization of the Democrats and it's been a long process, but I I think when when it finally hit full swing was when Bill Clinton said the era of big government is over in 1996 yep. and then signed the Telecommunications Act and then everybody has got has forgotten how to build a community alliance ever since to you know kind of fight back against a lot of this utter bollocks and it was the the end of welfare as as we know it, I think those were the words that they used. And the end of big government, as we know it. Yeah, and and the welfare part was put in there. And I think, like, mm-hmm. I, I, I've been working on this idea for a while that uh, what what the Bernie Sanders coalition was all about was was making more robust and rebuilding building back better our welfare safety oh God, net i know i'm sorry but but oh. it, it's not it's not a socialism that is about seizing the means of production it is a socialism that is you know all it's asking is hey could we have that safety net back that's it's very it's, small ask. it's asking for social democracy it's asking to kind of go back to the way that you know we were pre i'd say you, between uh, FDR and LBJ, uh-huh. when we had the the post war prosperity, and you know because FDR started all the programs, and then uh, the other thing that that happened there too, I feel like kind of set us back as a movement on the left is that they really uh, cracked hard on on union organizing on on organized labor taft hartley is it, it it's still like in my top three of bills we need to repeal mm-hmm. in well, its entirety it, it, and 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 that's that speaks to this legal a, a, most people don't know a general strike is illegal a general strike has been banned in taft hartley it is technically illegal for a general strike Oh, and, talk about that a little bit, because I, I don't think people are aware of that. Yeah. So Taft-Hartley uh, put a whole lot of restrictions on what was, I believe, the Wagner Act of 1935, which was the legal codification process for unions in this country. So from 35, I believe it, what, Taft-Hartley? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm not looking at the notes, so if I mess this up, I apologize. I believe it was 1947 that it was put in. Because 1946, uh, America got back. Workers were struggling to get to get reacclimated after World War II, and we had a minor recession in 1946. Uh, so, the the Taft Hartley Act uh, did certain things. It banned wildcat strikes. It banned uh, uh, solidarity strikes. So if if you're if you're in a union and you go on strike, I can't legally say, "Hey, our union's going on strike too. We're joining up. Solidarity." We wow. can't do that legally. Legally, that is banned. Wildcat strikes are banned, but wildcat strikes were all, always kind of on the fringe. But they uh, imposed harsher penalties if you do conduct them. 
so yeah, you it takes away mass mobilization via the unions. It decimates it. Taft Hartley is one of the worst bills that the twenty the twentieth century ever gave us. Uh and and not not enough people are aware of it, and they're not, and they're not aware of how that impacts us. Because I think too few people belong to unions or are are familiar with that culture. Yeah, I grew up as a son of a, a union carpenter and a waitress, so I awesome. uh, so I've been working class through and through. Uh, yeah, it, it, the. <laughs> The joke is the American dream, but it's a dream because you, you got to be asleep to believe it. Uh, but, right. uh, it <laughs> but in all seriousness, we're yeah, that that is one of the the biggest things, I think, impeding a mass unionization effort. Also to card check, which that's a separate thing. But uh, that's why I felt like the PRO Act was OK, but it didn't go nearly as far as it should have. That sort of thing. It should have had card check in it. I was the one organizer out of a group of a thousand in like what 2019 when Bernie spoke in DC at People's Wave. I was the one yelling about card pass card check. <laughs> so wow. is, I take this stuff personally. Uh, this is this is the key to you know ma- mass mobilization. This is the key to getting people out in the streets. If people knew. 50% and all you got to do is have the cards and you have a union representation that would open the door. And I think you would see a 25% spike in union membership in America. And that was the issue that Obama famously said that he was going to put on his comfortable shoes and go walk on the, the picket line with people to get card check. And uh, somehow he, he, forgot to do that he did he lost track of his comfortable shoes yeah, city group city group took them and sold them right. <laughs> now this this is a good segue to talk about you did this really cool article on uh aoc's well, thank you yeah i've really enjoyed this because it's it's full of that kind of data that is super important and that that people need to understand and it, this is about AOC's political action committee called Courage to Change. And it was designed, supposedly, to uh, make early investments in progressive candidates who don't take PAC money. But, you know, it was these uh, insurgents, you know, people like AOC. And then she turns around and all of a sudden, tell everybody what happened to that money because it didn't go to. Yeah. These- so. Uh, when when Courage to Change finished out 2020, and by the way, should mention that everybody they backed in, in 2020 actually did kind of fit into that progressive, doesn't take corporate PAC money. They did the right thing for the whole first year that they were in existence. So this, this uh, given that, this really came out of left field. Uh, and... So what happened was they they had after after November 2020, when they closed their books out, they had about a half a million dollars in the bank. Now, that's it's a decent amount of money, right? It's not Mm -hmm. it's nothing to scoff at. It's enough to seriously back quite a few progressives, especially down ballot, because 
FEC is often more stringent with congressional candidates donating to you know other other people like other congressional candidates uh, and you know senators etc and or their party then they are down ballot races where that total might be double uh, so so for for people so people know uh, the FEC limit for donating to an, from one uh, candidate's uh, leadership pack to another candidate's committee, the the thing that runs the campaign mm-hmm. is five thousand dollars per okay. year. It is annually five thousand uh, dollars. So you're capped at that with how much money you can disperse. You can only send ten thousand dollars per cycle because you get two years in a congressional cycle. You can send, you know, ten thousand dollars to one of your congressional buddies over two years, but you got to do it one year at a time. AOC's Courage to Change pack took it took that five hundred thousand uh, dollars, including I, I, part of it was from the Squad Victory Fund as well. Uh, over four hundred thousand was donated to Courage to Change from the Squad Victory Fund. They they were they were culpable for about four hundred thousand dollars of that that twenty twenty total that was raised. So they still had a significant percentage of that funds probably still were sitting there, more or less. Wow. Just so people know, uh, so yeah, if you if you raise a million and spend half of it, you still got a half in the bank. Obviously, everybody knows how to manage a checkbook. Uh-huh. So they sent off four hundred thousand dollars. And they ended up with a decent amount left over after the campaigns. So what what this means is they could roll that over and then start with with 2021 and 2022 when they when the FEC reports come out, which come out every quarter. Everybody should know this because you all get the emails. Uh If I have to get another FEC deadline email, I'm going to scream. (laughs) But you all know every quarter the FEC comes and says how much have you raised, yada, yada. And they, they asked for the forms and the disclosures. When the disclosures came out, Politico wrote an article about, about AOC, uh, vulnerable Dems, uh, get a shock, AOC's campaign cash. I believe that was the headline, almost verbatim. <laughs> but it was a Politico article. But they didn't touch on the details they mentioned a couple people in that article that flew a red flag for me. They mentioned Connor Lamb. Uh, Connor Lamb is a known moderate, moderate, right-wing Democrat. Uh, so we knew, okay, that that's kind of sus. Why is she doing that? So I went back and checked and did the research and found a lot more names and found a lot more people who were against the left agenda. So I, and I really scratched my head trying to wonder why the only thing I can think is it's for clout, but I, I couldn't tell you anything else because it's baffling on its face. I would not give over a hundred thousand dollars to my political enemies to try uh-huh. to make nice with them. I'd spend that money on somebody else who's trying to take them out. It is baffling. I mean, the the whole reason Courage to Change was set up was to 
uh, support incumbent and insert uh, to just to support the insurgent Democrats, uh, people like the swap the incumbents like like Katie Porter or somebody like that. I, I would understand Katie Porter was on that list. I understand her getting five thousand dollars ahead of her race because mm-hmm. she's actually, uh, tr- you know, of the Democrats, she's one of the most palatable for me. But you found a group of thirty-one Democrats that were skewing. Yes corporatist and out of the 31 uh just six of the 31 19.4 percent were bothered to co-sponsor medicare for all and that's that's our core uh, issue right there yeah okay and and absolutely and i i agree and the thing the thing that baffles that blows my mind about this absolutely baffling that AOC's signature legislation is the Green New Deal, which is actually a watered-down version of a Green Party policy. Go figure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on that, she po- she proposed the bill twice. And I looked, and as of the day of writing, I, I've not checked this since. But all the bills that that we care about on the left, Medicare for All, uh, Green New Deal, they were all already proposed. Mm-hmm. So there were chances for co-sponsors to jump on. If you want to show to me that your $5,000 donation got somebody to sign up for Medicare for All, I'm going to give you a high five and say, way to go. Great job. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Let me pin a medal on your chest. But you know what happened? None of them changed the way that they co-sponsored. None of them decided to co-sponsor Medicare for All or Green New Deal. None. Unbelievable. She got 0%. Actually, I think she got 100% return on investment because I'm starting to get cynical on R2, but that's another story for another time. <laughs> <laughs> well, it does it, it does start to make you wonder what's going on here because uh, this piece of news has so damaged the brand of Courage to Change Pack that I doubt people are going to support it going forward and and along with the justice democrats which are also having branding issues right now because they oh i have a justice democrat story for you oh let's hear it oh yeah so 2018 i'm working for ben jealous right and yes we got an endorsement from justice democrats cool awesome i call up and i i've you know, explain who I am, what I'm doing, blah, blah, blah. See if there's anything that we could possibly collaborate on, on the ground level to really help because we're a couple percentage points off in this, this key area. And we could you really use your help right now. I get a message back. Probably. Uh, uh, I got a call back, I think like a day or two later from them. And they more or less said that they really didn't have the organizational capacity to do that. Wow. And just why would you bother endorsing anybody if you can't actually go back it up? Wow. I, I, I just, it just, I don't understand that. And but I, I do, but I don't, I understand it because it's about, it's about clout. It's about looking like they're doing something, but I called. I got I got no answer right away. Uh, I finally got a hold of somebody, and 
I was left disappointed and saying, well, what the hell are you actually doing? then?" Like there's no there there. So, so with, yeah, the- it, it feels like it felt like talking to a shell organization. Wow. It, 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 like it's an organization in bank account only. Kind of. Yeah. Interesting. And, and for, for, for that failing upwards that Democrats are famous for. <laughs> and look, look, let me tell you, I, I feel like I, I feel like I left a cult. Like Rose McGowan is absolutely right. I, I feel like after having dealt with all this, I, I feel so much better and freer as a person not having to deal with the ongoing constant corruption that this party has. And, and it, it continues full bore. And there's nothing one person or a hundred people can do because they've got all the money. And the money keeps flowing. And as long as, long as the money keeps flowing from Wall Street into the Democrats, the Democrats are going to keep fighting change. And, and Wall Street will kill the company. They will kill the Democrats. They uh-huh. will kill the company before they would let the people have it. That's right. And anytime someone comes along who is effective against the machine, and I, I'm thinking of uh, Alan Grayson, who, full disclosure, I I am a very big fan of and I've worked for in the past and is running again in uh, 2022. I, I have a feeling that the Democratic ex- establishment, I must said. Emma said ex-establishment, which who knows that could be uh, uh, prophetic. Uh, Can we excommunicate the establishment? <laughs> right. Right. They're, they're going to do everything they can to undermine him, you know, because oh, yeah. he's, he's the I'd kind rather, of Paul they uh, are afraid of. And that is to go back to uh, a little bit about when I talk about unify the left this is a little bit of that. This is because I realized the Democrats are going to fight you every step of the way. And, and they're going to do things like either give you horrible data or tank your data. <laughs> they're, they're going to be petty. They're going to be underhanded. And you might as well separate yourself from that so that you actually do get a competitive advantage. If you know how to raise money, if you know how to be a little bit of a showman, you do kind of have to be your own your own best promoter when you go independent or you know or minor leftist party as I say Greens Socialist Alternative People's Party uh, PSL Bread and Roses whoever whoever you have as your local leftist party you got to be your own best promoter and you have to be that hype game has to be strong or else it's not going to work. Well, and you mentioned data, and that is so key to all of the work that we do. And so I'm kind of hearing that that uh, with regard to data, that there, that maybe if you're an insurgent candidate, maybe you might be skeptical of the van the numbers that you're getting, or, or or the information that you're getting out of the van. Like, do you think that there is, you know, like bad data that comes from this the state parties van, down NGP van. And they're especially their metrics mm-hmm. are absolute dog shit. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Listen, uh, I worked for I worked for them in 2018, and I got a good chance to view a little bit of under the hood. Uh, and we got chance, like I got a chance one afternoon to play with Van, 
and start going through and looking at all the different details, how they how they kind of culminate a score, what they believe that their prime voters are and how the metrics are done and some things that happen. They they looked at my record. Mm -hmm. My record was of voting was spotty spotty and then bernie hit and i voted in every election ever since Mm -hmm. their their metrics still show that person as being like uh 20 likely to vote even though the current trends what is actually happening in front of you is that this person had something it which woke them up politically which now they have voted in three consecutive elections their data does not cover that. Interesting. Now their I know- data does not cover that. And in fact, it will it will tell you to go knock a Republican's door instead of somebody and and, and put higher priority on those types of voters for get out the vote calls. Wow. As opposed to the one who might like where it's very obvious somebody got like somebody is now a newly regular voter. They have now voted in, in, you know, this is so to give you an example where we were, this would have meant two primaries and a general. Uh-huh. So this person showed up for two primary elections. Wow. That's a likely voter. The yeah. last two primaries. And and the the general that happened before that. But but the primaries, you, you know, your primary turnout is it, you're lucky if you get to 35 percent. Yep. So the so the advice to campaign workers would be don't pay attention to the scoring metrics. Instead, pull your own metrics. Decide which which primaries yes and which elections no. matter um, to you. I would I honestly I'd keep your data off of off of NGP Van uh-huh. because anything that you do with NGP Van, they have they they can go in on the the higher up admin levels and give that data in bulk, like the metadata. Okay. They, they could, in fact, give all the data metrics and all that stuff right over to, you know, right over to the Democrats who you are trying to fight. So the the workaround would be using a platform like L3, maybe? Yeah, the, the, that's kind of the tricky part, right? Like, there's no great campaign apps right now. Okay. NGP van is like I've had as many times where it would crash on me uh-huh. and I'd have to like I'd be sitting at like I had desyncs. Oh, wow. uh, I use uh, I use ground game before and ground game is just. It it seems like one of those things where it would work, but the people who were running it had no idea how to make it work. Because there should be no reason that you're loading fifteen thousand doors on somebody's on somebody's app. It just you know wow. you need a hundred. Yeah, right. You need even if you take a subsection, if you're working a specific polling place location, you give that person like two hundred fifty three hundred doors on that subsection, and then they can make their way through it, and then be like, hey, can you send me a new? You know what this ended up with? This ended up with me sitting in a parking lot, mooching Wi-Fi from like a Panera or something and and trying to re-download all my databases. Yeah. Yeah. 
So, yeah, so this and, is super important. The, the data, every campaign is is built on data. Like that's where it all comes yes. from. And and you know, Obama knew that. Obama created his own data system. And I think that people should should really take seriously, uh, you know, asking themselves why. You know, why why would he do that in the first place? And 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 notice that that was very successful for him. <laughs> that yeah. really paid off. And when you get, especially when it when it comes to, I mean, look at uh, AOC's run, her her twenty eighteen run. It was very successful. They used very different metrics. Uh, they they worked outside of NGP van, which I can't stress enough to people because you know you're you're li- it would be like working for a group that would sell your information to the Republicans, right? So why would you do it? You wouldn't if you had that mentality going in that they're going to take my data and give it to the Republicans. You wouldn't give them your data. So what do you suggest? Like, like, uh, should... I suggest we need a lot of developers. Uh-huh. I suggest we need proprietary leftist software. I, I think that we, we also, too, we need to realize where the trend lines are going. And we need to be able to call out the people who are, who are still trying to push this failed strategy. I can tell you that they aren't moving except to move more towards fascism as they've kept doing for the past 40 plus years. Agreed. And, and and look, as I always tell people, the Democrats have had 80 years to pass a living wage and single payer health care. What's the holdup? Exactly. And people think that, that those fights only rights, started way, 78 years ago, I believe. That's right. 78 years. It didn't start with Bernie. It started forever ago. My grandparents. This has been hundreds were, of years of a fight. Yep, exactly. Exactly. Uh, I grew it, up in the shadow of, of the Appalachian Mountains. We got a lot of labor history and a lot of a lot of socialists who want to make redneck socialist again. <laughs> I lived a lot in, of people like, I lived a lot in, of people like that. I lived in the mountains in East Tennessee for 10 years. That's where I went to college and then in middle Tennessee, but uh, up in East Tennessee, I can tell you that those Hills that you think are nothing but crazy conservatives. Those folks are, are are complete socialists because TVA came in and brought them electricity and, and they worked in industries that had progress administration. Yep. hundred percent. They, They come in and guess what? You need a job? Well, guess what? Guess what we need? We need to be able to run power lines up these mountains. Mm -hmm. All you got to do is be able to cut down trees and do some hard labor. But guess what? Look, there's no shortage of Americans that would sign up for a good, honest job with a good, honest pay. They would love it. And, you you know, this is... And and all that and all the other accoutrements. The... As we say, the actual American dream that they've been trying to pull out from under our feet. And creating infrastructure that, that we that we need that spread. Oh yes. Oh yes. And and I keep talking about now a twenty second century infrastructure plan, and it's not to put it off for eighty years, it's that we need to build it now for the next century. Yeah, we need Long to start after I'm gone. We Long need... after I am I am worm food. Uh I I the, the plan has to be to build to the future. Yep. The plan has to be to be ready for 2200. 
And we used to understand this. We used to build cathedrals that were started when uh, one person was in power and they weren't finished until you know, that person had died and it had, the project yeah. got passed on to the next, you know, that's how you make, that's how you make civilization. You know, yes. I, I mean, I yes. feel like we've decided to be uncivilized at some point and nobody asked me about it. <laughs> I think, I, I think some of it is the, the nonstop fodder that comes in through our, you know, our media consumption Absolutely. I don't know. I don't know how anybody in their right mind. The the only reason that I still have a cable subscription is because it makes my internet cheaper. Yep, and a little and better. It, it became and it became a, it became a a oh well this actually saves me money. Otherwise, I would have gotten rid of it a long time ago. Yeah. And and, and I don't even watch the damn thing. It's other people in my house who watch it, and I I. I, I kind of, I, I don't understand it anymore. I used to. The only thing I watch now occasionally is like live sports. Like I'll watch when the Orioles are on occasionally, occasionally. And, it, and even then I'd rather stream it right. somewhere else because get, then MLB.tv takes out the commercials. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it makes it even more convenient for me to do that. So what's that saying? That's saying we have gotten to the point that, we've gotten we've gotten decadent and and lazy and we've also we've also been inundated with so much data and so much just bullshit on the airwaves just non-stop waves and waves of bullshit and uh, i feel like i'm channeling george carlin here but it's true <laughs> we've been we've gotten we've gotten inundated just and, and and of course for every 22 minutes you watch you get eight minutes of ads so that the mm-hmm. the sponsors who sponsor the show who tell you they're sponsoring the show during the show can also run the clip for their products in the meantime right people don't realize how much of this is bought and paid for and the more we can get people to turn off the tv and start reading and doing some investigative research for themselves and following the money. That's right. Because the money talks. I was always raised. Like I, I, I grew up in East Baltimore. We, we always say money talks, bullshit walks. Uh huh. That's right. And, and guess what? The, the money says they're doing this for a reason. And they're tr- this is the same reason that they're trying to split up our networks on Twitter. They, do not want us to organize a mass movement because they're very, very afraid of the results. Well, and we are going to surprise them because I, I feel so, like we're, we're we're already we're already organized. We're already yes, you know, yes. uh, assembled. And I should I should point out when when AOC said organize around student debt. I damn near spit out whatever <laughs> beverage I was drinking and said, are you daft? Have you seen Occupy? Oh, wait, you were at Boston University at the time. You don't remember that, do you? <laughs> you ain't you ain't been around in this movement long enough. How about you, uh, to quote Ernie Ladd, sit down under the learning tree to learn yourself something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but seriously, where where is this fight? Where, like, because... I, when I when I heard that, it made my blood boil, and I want to see actually, I want to see people actually get done 
with the corruption and get done with this party because the sooner we do, the sooner we're actually going to have a cohesive left movement that can make them shake in their boots. And we are working towards that every cycle. We work towards that <sighs> every, every day. day. Yep. Every day. And actually that, that ties right back into what I'm trying to do with unify the left. And that's why I say this party keeps moving away from the people. Unify the left as a concept. It, it, one of my core beliefs in that project is that the one of the biggest disservices ever done to the American leftist movement is a bunch of leaders from previous generations got pissed off at each other and had two big egos and split off. Yep. And that is the biggest disservice because now you have, instead of having one functional, like socialist left alternative party, you have like 18 who all have no power and like one tenth of the vote and cannot push for meaningful policy and can't even get out of their own way enough right. most of the time. So the idea of unify the left is to find 50 plus state viability. And to do this, we need to take the infrastructure that each one has built and kind of merge it. You show me one leftist alternative party that runs a full slate where they have serious contenders and I'll, I'll yeah I'll eat I'll eat my phone right now because <laughs> it doesn't it, it's not happening. The Democrats and Republicans can't even do that. It doesn't exist. We need to treat viability as a thing that well we can change what viable means. We can change what it means to have a left network and a leftist infrastructure. And we need a whatever you want to call it, but a left that is beyond the Democratic Party. We need that to be the unifying beacon. And we need one of them in every state. We don't need I don't need three different presidential candidates mm -hmm. on my ballot. I need one that's going to push for five percent, then 15 percent. So we can get debate stage access. I, th this is what Unify the Left is about. Unify the Left means we need to take all this infrastructure and merge it and take all our great minds and put them to work to create that NGP van for the left that is in a trapdoor. All right. That was Justin in Baltimore on Twitter. Find him at Justin in B more. Also check out in the show notes. I have a link to his medium article on the AOC pack. And uh, he tells me he is also launching a website really soon. So follow him on Twitter and stay tuned for much more. with Janine Maloff. This week's Justice Report is about how the January 6th insurrection has never actually ended. Hey, Janine. Hey, Brooke. I'm just going to go straight into it because this is about not only the fact that the January 6th insurrection never ended, 
but Trump himself represents an ever-present threat to democratic rule. So, you know, the January 6th insurrections been in the news again. This time, it warranted coverage as the proposed January 6th commission bill went down in flames due to the silent filibuster, predictably. Now, like most things political, there's rarely an instance of direct causation, but the silent filibuster is a major exception. In a vote of 54 to 35, the simple majority lost. This is significant because without the commission, an investigative body of some type, whether whether authorized by Congress or the FBI, we won't get, we won't obtain the evidence necessary to implement uh, criminal prosecutions of possible congressional collaborators or anybody else who aided and abetted what was, in effect, an attempt to nullify an election, overthrow the elected government, and murder political opponents in what can only be called a lynch mob worthy of approval from the likes of the Ku Klux Klan or the Nazis of the Third Reich. And this is not hyperbole. This is accurate. So there are some who cry free speech and assume that the First Amendment is going to magically shield them for prosecution for anything that they do as long as they also say it. They're wrong. While free speech rights do protect people from prosecution from the government and they can issue all types of inane and ignorant commentary, the First Amendment does not shield them from prosecution when they follow up with that commentary with acts of violence. It's this issue that must be discussed and leads to this very inconvenient truth. The January 6th insurrection to violently overthrow our democracy never ended, period. It's continued, and Donald Trump is actively stoking the flames of white supremacy and neo-Nazism. When I put white supremacy and tag it with neo-Nazism, it's because they are, in essence, the same. One of the main reasons historically that Hitler went after the Jews was because he called the Jews a mud race and we were not considered to be white. So they are the same. White supremacy and Nazism, the same. I'll also mention how the mainstream press continues to ignore this danger while harping about the demise of nonsense like Donald Trump's blog or his Twitter status. This level of selective muteness on the part of corporate read mainstream media is inexcusable. Such selective muteness only grants Trump and his Nazis the cover they need to remain in the shadows as they continue to plot to subvert democratic rule. My report will discuss this set of issues and mainly about the plot to subvert democratic rule. What the mainstream corporate media is doing by focusing on Inanities such as Trump's Twitter account, once again, it goes without saying. It's rather obvious. So the first article comes from a a Republican, ironically. um, And it was an article that was in a blog called The New Civil Rights Movement. It was written by David Badash. And it was written just a few days ago. And it's about a man named Steve Schmidt, who is a Republican. Steve Schmidt issues dire warning, U.S. just one election away from permanent Trumpian autocratic rule. And and basically, Schmidt was quoted as saying one of the gravest threats the country has ever faced. So Steve Schmidt was a GOP strategist, and then he became a Democrat. He's also the Lincoln Project co-founder. And the Lincoln Project was the group that 
actively campaigned against Trump because they said this was not the, what the GOP stood for. So he really called out because Donald Trump gave a speech this weekend at the North Carolina Republican Party uh, meeting, and Schmidt issued this warning. And he said, America's one election away from permanent autocratic rule from the former president and his allies. There was a 512-word Twitter thread. And Schmidt is warning that the GOP has become uh, stronger since January 6th, since the insurrection. And he also called out anyone who thinks Trump being out of the spotlight and off of social media that it's weakened him, he calls these people out as fools. And I agree with Schmidt. Schmidt also urged the media to stop focusing on the fact that Trump's blog basically failed. It's unimportant. Unless you're really hot to read the ravings of somebody whose language skills are at the level of a slow-witted third grader. So anyway, Trump is, Schmidt goes on to say, Trump is the, quote, presumptive nominee, end quote, for 24, for the POTUS. And, you know, Schmidt is a student of history. He said he warned that, quote, elected officials of the Republican Party are obedient, are obedient soldiers in Trump's cult of personality. His words will surely kill again, according to Schmidt. Now, you have to remember, it isn't just the insurrection. You know, Donald Trump also withheld about the, the truth about COVID. He lied about COVID, which resulted in hundreds of thousands of deaths that didn't need to happen. So blood is on Trump's hands. Blood is on the hands of the GOP. And Schmidt's right. But right now I'm going to read the Twitter thread because it sets the stage for everything else. Here's Steve Schmidt's Twitter thread. Quote, today is the third day of profoundly stupid media coverage around the demise of the Trump blog. How should we assess Trump in this moment? And specifically, how do we gauge his relative power and influence? Some have posited that Trump's loss, social media bans, and inability to sustain a blog are evidence of his decline, irrelevance, and diminishment. Many of these people have argued that saying Trump's name out loud is what fuels and sustains the Trump threat. All we need to do, they claim, is to treat him like Voldemort, so long as no one speaks his name out loud, no problem. These people are fools, and their delusions are dangerous for the survival of American democracy. We are at an hour that requires people to wake up. Trump is powerful, and he is a clear and present danger to our democratic society and national stability. Trump has the ability to kill and destroy with the spoken word. His words, his lies, delusions, and conspiracy theories have caused bloodshed. That is what happened on January 6th. His words will surely kill again. Trump is the leader of an authoritarian movement made up of an eclectic mix of extremists, including proud boy fascists, neo-Nazis, white nationalists, religious fanatics, and conspiracy theorists. The Republican Party is the vessel of this movement, and the membership of that party is overwhelmingly united around the cause of Trump. Trump is not just the frontrunner for the GOP nomination. He is the presumptive nominee. Trump is in command of the party, lock, stock, and barrel. The elected officials of the Republican Party are obedient soldiers in Trump's cult of personality, which can be measured in the tens of millions of people. This movement has become faithless to American democracy, and it requires an almost Trumpian level of historic, historical ignorance to not recognize it as one of the gravest threats the country has ever faced. Trump's power in, and influence is both frightening and real. It has been said there are no dumb ideas. There are. High on the list of the notion that Trump's failed blog evidences his waning power. It doesn't. 
it means nothing. A Trump indictment will not kill off Trump or his movement. It will simply hasten his candidacy. When he becomes a candidate again, Facebook and Twitter will lift their well-earned bans. We are in the early years of a great struggle in this country that will last a long time, provided the pro-democracy side can win elections because we are one away from seeing the autocratic side take power. They will not relinquish it again when they do. The GOP was not chastened by January 6th. It has grown more extreme, and it is on track to take back control of the House in 22. The pro-democracy coalition won a great victory when Joe Biden became president. That victory has brought us some, bought us some time, but all the time in the world can't cure a willful and delusional blindness to the great danger, resilience, ambition, and authoritarianism of Trump's movement. And that's very true. He just comes out and calls out the mainstream media because the mainstream media should still be on the GOP, be on some of the blue dog Democrats, be on Trump himself and his allies for all the for the excess and COVID deaths, for the insurrection and so on. And those senators that voted against the January 6th commission. Those senators like Roy Blunt, who were absent and Kirsten Cinema on the other side, they were absent from the vote because, in my opinion, they just didn't want to go to, go down on record. They should all be investigated to see if there's a conflict of interest, to see if they aided and abetted, or if nothing else, to see if they had foreknowledge of what was going to to occur on the sixth, and they and, and they held on to the information and withheld it from authorities. These are all important points. So that was number one. So here's the next part. Here's how multiple GOPers are, I'm just going to say, it, kissing Trump's ring like any mafioso boss to get his endorsement. You know, we know from long time ago the way the original mafia operated things, the boss didn't actually say, go kill so and so. They said, you know, it would be nice if we could just get rid of that problem. And the, the inference was, you know, go kill. It had the same effect. So now we have a press release, ironically, um, on Trend Watch. Republican candidates trip over each other in desperate attempt to win coveted Trump endorsement. GOP primaries consumed by messy battles to earn Trump's blessing. This is just a general press announcement. Um, there was a series of reports from Ohio, Pennsylvania, and North Carolina. These are key battleground states, and they are being consumed by this competition from the from the GOP to appease Trump. Pure and simple. That's what the article is, to appease him. You can't appease an abuser. You have to basically jail an abuser. And Trump's an abuser. But that's what happened. So in Ohio, the Associated Press reported that, quote, Republican contenders already are working furiously to cast themselves as Trump's favorite in the open race. And they're positioning themselves, quote, frantically in hopes of being deemed the Trumpiest of them all, end quote. So it doesn't even have to be Donald Trump. As long as they get his blessing, there's the abuse will continue. And it is abuse. In Pennsylvania, uh, there was a report from The Hill uh, how Republicans are bracing for, quote, a heated Senate primary that will see candidates competing to tie themselves to former President Trump. And in North Carolina, the News and Observer reported that GOP primary rivals are courting Trump himself. And two of the three major candidates have, quote, already made trips to see Trump in South Florida. 
Okay. Um, there's more. The AP reported one candidate uh, circulated a who's done more for Donald Trump's scorecard. I'm not kidding. This stuff is crazy. Um, and Ohio's Democratic U.S. Senator Sherrod Brown um, had a different take. He said, quote, the five Republican candidates for Senate are like kids on a playground sticking their tongue out and saying Donald Trump loves me more than he loves you, end quote. Well, that's pretty accurate, but it's also very dangerous. Uh, in late March, let's see, there were two wealthy businessmen. One's name is Mandel, another one's Timken, and then another one, Mike Gimmons and Bernie Marino. They made what was described as a pilgrimage to South Florida. Okay. Um, and one of their one of their claims was, um, you know, they did this bizarre scene that was described that looked a lot like um, Trump's old show, The Apprentice. So, you know, once again, Trump is there. He is he's just basically playing behind the scenes and letting them all just trip all over him. Um, there's more. Let's see now. Um, let's see. So these are candidates that are bragging about how they are tied to Donald Trump. Okay, so this is really very dangerous. This was in Trend Watch, and Trend Watch is part is basically a publication from the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee. In full disclosure, so you know for those right wingers who scream biased. Because I use Trend Watch. McClatchy also reported, okay, on the same stuff. All right. That basically these um, these Republicans are basically trying to prove that they are in Trump's good graces. Uh, according to McClatchy, former U.S. Rep. Mark Walker uh, visited posting, quote, a photo of himself with Trump on Twitter and saying that, quote, he quote, appreciated his encouragement in our U.S. Senate run, end quote. U.S. Rep. Ted Budd visited with Trump um, before entering the race, and he said he thought Trump would support him as long as daughter-in-law Laura Trump didn't get into the race. So, again, McClatchy isn't a Democratic anything. It's a new service. So, we can go on and on, but you get the idea. And there, here's the weird thing, too. Um, at a rally in Hickory, North Carolina, on November 1st, Trump recited a song called The Snake, which was written by civil rights activist Oscar Brown Jr. Um, so, again, they're trying to reframe the message and twist the truth, which, you know, is what Donald Trump does, you know. So... North Carolina lawmakers, according to McClatchy, also take on Liz Cheney. Um, once again, it's not that Liz Cheney so wonderful, but she at least didn't go along with the most egregious of Trump toadies. Let's put it that way. Um, and, you know, once again, we have to remember that with Trump insisting he can do anything he wants with this clear lack of respect for actual rule of law. The precursor to this was when the Supreme Court handed the presidency to George W. Bush when they stopped a vote count. 
It's just that simple. So this has been going on. One thing, it's a slippery slide, slippery slope, that is. So, and this was written by, all this was by Brian Murphy, who covers North Carolina's congressional delegation and state issues from D.C. for the News and Observer, the Charlotte Observer, and the Herald Sun. Those are all McClatchy papers. Now we move on. And just yesterday in USA Today, the headline by, Dave, by an article by David Jackson was Donald Trump to speak in North Carolina, returning to political stage as he continues to split Republicans. I would argue that Trump isn't splitting Republicans. I would say that most of the GOP is either getting in line to do his dirty work for him or they're at least remaining silent. These are too cowardly to take on the Trump lynch mob. And that's what it is, a lynch mob. Make no mistake about it. And so, of course, Trump is still talking about how the election was stolen and there was all this voter fraud that never actually took place. Keep in mind, the Trump campaign filed, I believe it was 60, 60 cases alleging voter fraud. They lost all of them, including by judges that were ironically appointed by Donald Trump himself. But the truth doesn't matter to these people. Um, you know, and you've got creeps like Sidney Powell who pop up again in this article. Um, you know, she's still saying how he could be reinstated as president. Um, that was according to a New York Times tweet. You know, quote has been telling a number of people he's in contact with that he expects he will get reinstated by August. Again, reality is not for them. Um, there were speeches, according to the USA Today uh, article, given behind closed doors. And again, you know, if it's a private group, they can do that. But you have to wonder what they're saying. Um, so once again, this is what's going to go on. And now um, I was able to access the, the actual formal transcript of the speech that Donald Trump gave yesterday at the North Carolina GOP convention dinner. I'm not going to go over all of it. This was in Greenville, North Carolina. It's the annual state Republican Party convention. And apparently at that point, Trump endorsed Republican Ted Budd for the Senate race. Laura Trump announced she won't be running. And her reasoning was she has young children, so she's going to stay at home. And this speech, I just downloaded part of it. You can look at it yourself if you like. But it's the usual Trump, I'm just going to say the word, bullshit, okay? You know, he gets up there and it's as if he thinks that he's accepting an Oscar. You know, thank you very much. This has been such an honor. You know, again, the loonies are running the place. Um, and once again, he continues to schmooze and then he gets into some of the incitement. Again, it's not obvious, but it's implied. So these are red flags. These are the, um, the phrases that trigger the biggest. Crime is exploding. This is, this is directly from Trump's speech. Quote, crime is exploding. Police departments are being ripped apart and defunded. Can you believe that? Is that good politics to fund our police? Number one, it's bad for our country. But think of it. Defund our police. You know, I've long said they're vicious. They're violent. They, they in many cases, hate our country and they have bad policy. Now the bad news from our standpoint, they stick together. 
they don't have some of the people we have where they go on their own and they do what they have to. They stick together and there's one thing they have, they stick together, but their policy is so bad. Good Lord. Damn. If I didn't know that this came from a politician, I would think, oh, that poor baby, that poor Alzheimer's ridden baby. I'm not saying Trump has Alzheimer's, but that word salad looks a lot like what you would get from a typical Alzheimer's patient that a moderate in the moderate range. And he goes on, he goes, we're going to have a tremendous 2022, just like we did, frankly, 2020. Think of it, more votes than any sitting president in the history of the United States by far. We had a great election. Bad things happened, but we had a great election. Again, reality doesn't enter. He goes on, quote, you look at our border is wide open. That's not even a sentence. Illegal immigration is skyrocketing at a level that we've never seen before. And this is over a period of a few months. Drugs are pouring in. Gas prices are soaring. Our industries are being pillaged by foreign cyber attacks. There's a lack of respect for our country and for our leaders. Speaking of leaders, they're bowing down to China and end quote. And then there's this one line that is so reminiscent of the con that Hitler pulled. Quote, America is being demeaned and humiliated on the world stage. Our freedom is being overtaken by left-wing cancel culture, and the Biden administration is pushing toxic critical race theory and illegal discrimination into our children's schools, end quote. All right. If that's not incitement, then I don't know what is. Um, Basically, he is pushing the idea of white victimization, which is really nonsense. Um, There's so many lies in this, it's unreal. Toxic critical race theory. Critical race theory, and I was a teacher, critical race theory is basically teaching the truth about this country's original sin, namely slavery, and then after that, the subsequent virulent racism. And apparently, you know, this is something we we have it here in Missouri, where basically there was uh, a school board meeting in a place called Eureka, Missouri. And this these parents were up in arms against critical race theory. They said, it's not that I'm racist, but newsflash, lady, if you have to say it's not that I'm racist, but that means you're racist. Because only a racist would feel the need to make that qualifier. It just doesn't work. Trump goes on to say, the survival of America depends upon our ability to elect Republicans at every level. Okay, he's saying it right there. And then he goes on, I'm skipping ahead, quote, together we're going to defend our freedoms. Um, he goes on and says, we have to defend our borders. We have to do all these things and the cancel culture, the defunding culture, the defending culture. And they defend the wrong things. We're not going to let it go any longer going to stand up for our values and we're going to take back our country. Okay. Once again, this rambling, these are all the red flags, the, the actual um, coded red flags that trigger white supremacists and Nazis. And that's what's so dangerous about this kind of dog whistle type language, which Trump is using and the GOP is using, because it gives the bigots some level of plausible deniability because they didn't directly say it, but it was implied strongly enough. And to those that are bigoted, they collectively understand the dog whistle and they collectively respond to the dog whistle. 
And that's what he's doing. So and then there's more evidence that the GOP of Trump has always intended a wholesale overthrow of democracy in an article from the New Republic by Alex Shepard just a few days ago. And this involves Michael Flynn. Trump's Republicans want a coup. Michael Flynn's embrace of a Myanmar style military overthrow is chilling. It's also a growing position within the GOP, end quote. And it is. For a former general in the U.S. military to embrace the idea of a military coup like in Myanmar, that's not just a disgrace. Mike Flynn should, one, be investigated. And even though he's retired, he should be most likely court-martialed and possibly along with his brother. It was his brother who uh, was involved in allegedly allegedly evolved in uh, delaying the National Guard response on January 6th. So Michael Flynn, retired general, he served as Trump's national security advisor before he was fired because he lied about conversations he had with the Russian ambassador. But on Memorial Day weekend, he advocated for the U.S. military to overthrow the government. And that's as documented by Vox.com. He was speaking at um, this it was a For God and Country Patriot Roundup in Dallas. And that's a conference that is really popular with QAnon people. And he was asked by somebody who was in attendance, quote, I want to know why what happened in Myanmar can't happen here. End quote. Flint's response, quote, no reason. I mean, it should happen here. End quote. That's pretty, pretty obvious to me. Then Flynn tried to kind of take back some of his comments on Monday, which on a a social media network called Telegram. And that's one that is uh, frequented by right wing extremists, again, as documented by Vox.com. Quote, according to Flynn, there is no reason whatsoever for any coup in America. And I do not and have not at any time called for any action of that sort. End quote. Um, He also wrote, quote, that any reporting suggesting otherwise is, quote, a bold-faced fabrication, end quote. But when you listen to that question, when somebody asked him why what happened in Myanmar, which was a violent military overthrow of the democratically elected government, can't happen here, Flynn's response is very clear. Quote, no reason, I mean, it should happen here. So it's obvious on Monday on Telegram, General Flynn was lying. Because he said it in plain terms. It should happen here. There is no misunderstanding. There's no gray area. So Flynn's comment is really representative of today's GOP. You've got a a large segment, Marjorie Taylor Greene and some of the others that are all for it. And then you've got a smaller segment that are too cowardly to directly go along with it, but they refuse to do anything about it. And that's the Roy Blunt. Okay. So this is what's really going on here. Then you had Sidney Powell, who ironically, you know, this, according to Reason.com, she was a, she held, quote, batshit election conspiracy theories. That same person was a former federal prosecutor. Good Lord. And she was also a keynote. At this conference, she told the people in attendance that Trump should, quote, be reinstated. 
This was according to Newsweek. Okay? There's no guesswork here. These people are using their alleged free speech rights to incite violence to overthrow the government. So let's move on. You get the drift here, okay? We've spent almost 30 minutes on it. Let's move on. So we also have a fact. Basically, this is an article from Rolling Stone just this past October 2020. And this is the, what I call the roots of Trumpian autocratic theft. 2000 SCOTUS or Supreme Court decision that stole the presidential election for George W. Bush. And this was written by Sean Wilentz. And the headline is how Donald Trump plans to overthrow American democracy. Current polls suggest the president cannot win the election. That doesn't mean he can't steal it. And it's clear after the January 6th, leading up to this January 6th insurrection and after, that is exactly what Trump intends to do. And he's continued. It hasn't stopped. Um, and so in their own, you know, basically what Schwalens is saying that if you believe Donald Trump and his operatives, they have modeled their response, their attempted theft of democracy. They have modeled it on the 2000 Supreme Court decision of Bush v. Gore. There was a single vote, Scalia, the late Antonin Scalia, where the Supreme Court halted the counting of ballots in Florida and stealing the presidency for George W. Bush. Now, there was this idea when Barack Obama was elected president, we're going to look forward, not back. Wrong. George W. Bush and his cohort should have faced criminal investigation and, yes, prosecution. They essentially disenfranchised voters in Florida. Period. This is, this is more important than any one election. And it set a very dangerous precedent. So Trump's lawyers, of course, thought we can do the same. And that's what this, what this one writer, Wilentz, is really speaking to. Um, and Wilentz says that basically the court's stated rationale was ludicrous. It was based on, quote, a tortured reading of the U.S. Constitution's guarantee of equal protection under the law. Get this, quote, that even Justice Antonin Scalia, who wrote the decision, later called it, quote, a piece of shit. And this is also in a book that came out recently, a book on uh, Sandra Day O'Connor's tenure on the Supreme Court, where basically they, they talk about how Antonin Scalia, the justice who wrote the Bush v. Gore decision, where they based failing to count all the votes on this dubious guarantee of equal protection, Scalia himself, who wrote the decision, called that rationale, quote, in Scalia's words, a piece of shit, end quote. That's pretty clear, folks. And so we go on, and this is the main thing that Wilentz is pointing out, all right? We're going to move on. So this new book on, on uh, Sandra Day O'Connor Scalia thought equal protection rationale Bush v. Gore was, as we say in Brooklyn, quote, a piece of shit. And the book is called First by Evan Thomas. And, um, you know, once again, this is what they're going on. So even that that Bush v. Gore decision, the man who wrote the decision, the late Antonin Scalia, 
in his own words, said it was a piece of shit. He knew what he was doing was wrong, but he didn't have the true moral forbearance to do the right thing. So now we're going to go on with something from The Guardian. And this is on the quizzling nature of free speech in the era of resurgent lynch mobs rivaling the early Nazis. Okay. And this is a long read and it deals a lot with the whole issue of freedom of speech. Okay. And especially on the ACLU because the ACLU has fought for free speech rights longer than just about any other organization. And the traditional view by the ACLU has been that we will defend the free speech rights even of people that we abhor, like neo-Nazis, because if we don't, then free speech rights are in danger for everybody. And, there, and in terms of the abstract, there's truth to that. That's why you saw Jewish lawyers defending neo-Nazis as they planned to march on Skoku. And there's been a schism now because the ACLU's become not only more diverse, is enlarged as a group because during Trump's tenure as president, uh, membership skyrocketed. But in that diversity, you have a lot of younger people and people of color who have more often than not been the victims of this far right. And they have a hard time holding on to the abstract and it's understandable. So, you know, here's, what happened, okay? Um, since the ACLU in 1920 was founded, it's made the U.S. basically a home to the most riotous free speech and unregulated in the world. And it's done so by defending in the courts and public opinion free speech rights of racists and fascists. And they, you know, basically they say, if we don't protect them, we're not going to protect any of us. So to quote um, the ACLU website, Quote, the same laws or regulations used to silence bigots can be used to silence you. And this part's true. But here's where we have to look a little closer, because too many affluent white liberals have taken this to mean that we can't fight racists and fascists at all when they inflame, incite, and outright lie. They're wrong on that one. The free speech rights of bigots do not negate a competing and opposition message. So when Marjorie Taylor Greene spouts all the insane lies she likes, we can call her out. We can sue her followers for slander, libel, and defamation in class action lawsuits, and we should. We can demand criminal prosecutions of racists when they break the law. On January 6th, we don't need to silence their speech necessarily. They committed enough crimes. They broke and entered. They uh, were guilty of criminal trespass. They committed multiple acts of assault and battery. They committed acts that led to homicides. There's plenty of crimes we can charge them with. And, you know, so this is where we have to kind of look at that, that balance, because on that one, the ACLU is right in that basically, um, you know, we have to Basically, that, that quote, quote, the same laws or regulations used to silence bigots can be used to silence you. It's very true. Free speech is a double-edged sword. Okay. So there was a 2015 report from the Pew Center that they cited saying that Americans are more supportive of free expression than anyone else in the world. But 
Critics are saying the ACLU's insistence on defending extremist speech really gets in the way of the long fight for civil rights and also uh, handicaps the idea of social and political equality. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't. Um, a legal philosopher named Jer Jeremy Waldron said that the U.S. has, quote, polluted its civic environment with the slow-acting poison of hate, end quote. And while it's true, free speech does not grant the speaker touting hate and bigotry the right to threaten others. There was another Yale scholar that wondered if free speech could, quote, wreck the American experiment, end quote. Okay. And so the ACLU is always soldiered on with support for the right to say, a quote, even the most appalling things. Again, my, my view, the way I view this is that doesn't mean we can't politically or le legally retaliate against the purveyors of hate. While free speech rights guard against government criminal prosecution or political prosecutions, they do not protect against civil lawsuit or general resistance. Free speech rights do not protect against violence. Um, against act, uh, I'm sorry, free speech rights do not protect those that commit acts of violence uh, against any sort of legal retaliation. Um, they, they gave an example in this article. There were some fetish videos, sexual fet fetish videos of women crushing baby animals to death with spiked heels. I kid you not. And it was defended as free speech. It's not. Free speech does not grant the right to kill. Free speech does not grant the right to discriminate. While you can say the word, you cannot commit the action. That's the difference. But then Charlottesville happened, and that, that basically made things, um, the stakes much higher in terms of free speech. So when we're talking about free speech versus cancel culture, or, or rather censorship, if you will, the fact very simply is this. There are people on the political right, racist, white supremacists, neo-Nazis, that when they say they want free speech rights, that's not exactly what, they're, what, they're, what they mean, I suspect, is they want free speech rights with no, uh, no consequences at all. No social consequences, no political consequences, no legal consequences. Now, the First Amendment says the government can't can't censor you, but with criminal I'm sorry, with criminal prosecution because of what you say. And it also says the government can't commit, in essence, what are political prosecutions because of what you say. That part's true, but it does not mean that those that are purveyors of hate can basically issue those threats, issue those lies without any consequences. That's nonsense. While they have free speech rights, we have free speech rights on the other side to rebut what they say, to out their lies. Yes, to civilly sue them for slander, libel, and defamation, and do so as, as a class action suit to make it stick. I understand that basically communities of color are having a harder time with this because at the end of the day, they are the ones that receive the most abuse. It's understandable, but we have to also look at the long game here. Um, and that was part of this problem, too. Uh, an ACLU lawyer in California said, quote, staff of color have been feeling a lot of things. I'm working at this organization that is protecting groups that I believe shouldn't exist. That question of 
the very existence of people, my race. What does that mean personally? And what does that mean for the organization as a whole and its own structural racism? And it's true. And some of the staffers sent a letter to the head, uh, Romero. And again, on the other side, though, you had major news outlets, journalists from left and right that cover free speech, including Glenn Greenwald, who was still at The Intercept at this time, and Connor Friedersdorf at The Atlantic. And they argued that when you censor white supremacist speech, you're inevitably going to harm progressive speech as well. Um, and again, it is a balance, whether we like it or not. Um, this article is very long. You can read it yourself, truth be told. Um, the issues of Charlottesville, you know, really did push this. You know, once again, critics who basically when we're talking about free speech, we have to also look at the differences of similar communities receive, especially in terms of police treatment. Okay. Systemic police brutality does come into play. All right. When we saw it in January 6th and we saw it on the black lives matter, peaceable protests in DC the summer before. The Black Lives Matter protesters were attacked by the police, all dressed like gladiators, even though the, the protest was totally peaceable. January 6th, the insurrection killed people. They erected a gallows, and they were barely touched by the police. So, you know, uh, there was a legal scholar quoted from UCLA, Kesu Park, who said, quote, speech is a luxury of class. And of course, class is completely racialized in this country, end quote. And she's right. But that doesn't mean we throw out the baby with the bathwater. We don't throw out the First Amendment. It means we have to fix these mechanisms that are irre irretrievably broken. So, you know, once again, you also have groups like the National Association, the NAACP, um, who basically clashed with the ACLU over a film called The Birth of a Nation, which basically valorized the founding of the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, again, the issue is slander, libel, and defamation. The ACLU could have defended free speech while assisting in the slander cases. Free speech is a right, but there are immature voices who demand free speech without any consequences coming from their victims. Minorities suing racist groups for slander, libel, and defamation are not canceling free speech rights. They are rebutting lies pushed by racists while using their own free speech rights. Let's get the framing and the interpretation correct for once. Okay? And when we're looking at the whole cancel culture thing, according to this article, they did point out that conservatives who in earlier eras wanted to silence free speech, especially the speech of communists and anti-war activists, they realized finally that the First Amendment-based protections for corporations could strengthen the hand of the 1% and the corporate class. And thanks to some SCOTUS decisions, it did. So this goes on and on, and this is at the core of it, all right? This is what they're trying to silence any, uh, you know, any, any sort of uh, um, criticism of the far right. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish this off with a New York Times editorial that was written in 2008, just as Barack Obama became president. And it was written um, by Ian Kershaw, 
from Sheffield, England. And the title was How Democracy Produced a Monster. And he, the first line is, could something like it happen again? Quote, that is invariably the first question that comes to mind when recalling that Hitler was given power in Germany 75 years ago last week. End quote. And he goes on to say, quote, Hitler came to power in a democracy with a highly liberal constitution, and in part by using democratic freedoms to undermine and then destroy democracy itself, end quote. And this is exactly what the GOP of Trump, along with religious extremists, are doing now. They're using democratic freedoms and twisting them, calling out cancel culture if they get any consequences that are totally constitutional in order to get their way. Um, Hitler made it very easy to turn hatred against different minorities, whether it's gays, Jews, whatever, especially Jews. They were made to represent this uh, imagined external threat, quote, by both international capitalism and Bolshevism. Um, they were also a scapegoat. And I would say, just like Trump, that Trump's done the same thing by demonizing progressives or Antifa and communities of color. Trump is going straight from Hitler's playbook. There's no guesswork here. So, you know, by 1930, it was this, um, this writer said, quote, by 1930, it was effectively impossible to rule Germany without Nazi backing, end quote. Just like the GOP, which is utterly unable to rule without Trump now. Um, and, you know, we have to really consider what this is about. This is very, very dangerous. And Kershaw is a professor of modern history at Sheffield University. He's the author of a, of a book titled Hitler, the Germans and the Final Solution. So all of this comes together. All right. So in conclusion, the Guardian piece makes one point that is what I believe to be at the core of the problem. Quote. There is a tendency on the part of some First Amendment absolutists to imagine free speech not as part of a complex system of competing values, but as a binary state of purity or pollution, as if political speech in general is poisoned as soon as legal antidotes are created for any kind of speech whatsoever. As Waldron, the legal philosopher, once put it, it's as though one betrays free speech by even raising the issue, end quote. That's a legitimate point. Does any solitary right does any individual right become so dominant that it would be allowed to nullify other rights? Does free speech that is positioned to incite massive lynch mobs supersede another person's right to life, for instance? At what point does the speech become the triggering mechanism to overt and open violence? Does free speech couched in covert or secret terms, in other words, dog whistle terms, enjoy prosecutorial immunity if those dog whistle terms are proven insightful and resulted in violence. There is historic precedent that a would-be dictator used the tools of democracy to destroy democracy, and that was Hitler. The free speech argument is a case in point. Free speech is not a binary rule by itself. Free speech should be respected, but when it crosses over to incitement on the criminal level, or slander, libel, and defamation. On the civil litigation libel, the actual offense varies. In terms of slander, libel, and defamation, the offense is an abuse of free speech as it involves representing lies, including lies of omission, as the truth and damage is done. When free speech crosses over to incitement, that incitement is the triggering action, but it is the subsequent tangible crimes 
that are criminally prosecuted. January 6th is a perfect example. Insurrectionists broke and entered, they trespassed, they may have violated national security in terms of viewing government documents, which weren't for their for public eyes. They committed acts of assault, multiple assault, acts of assault and battery. They committed murder. We don't need to censor free speech in order to prosecute these criminals. We do, we do, however, need transparency and accountability at all levels of government, including and especially from the police and our legislators. Face it, the police in the USA do serve and protect the very rich. There is far too much documented evidence which backs up the systemic criminal abuse police inflict on the non-rich, especially communities of color. The political class, and I include both corporate parties in this mix, also aid and abet systemic economic abuse on the rest of us. Billionaires and corporate forces are allowed to write the laws while corporate politicians rubber stamp this entire charade, and the GOP does bear the most culpability. Since Trump's defeat, the GOP of Trump has made voter suppression and unequal representation its mantra, dressed up in the raiments of white supremacy and Nazism. The GOP's campaign against accountability was most lately evidenced by the use of the silent filibuster to strike down a commission to investigate the January 6th insurrection. But why? Why kill an investigation before it begins? <laughs> well, the answer is simple. The very top echelons of political and economic power actually need white supremacy and Nazism to distract the majority from the sheer fact that all of us are being economically enslaved by the same wealthy one percenters. White supremacy, a.k.a. Nazism, they are the same, is the grand distraction which cons white bigots into believing they have some power when they do not. White supremacy is the drug of choice used to anesthetize the majority from, from the economic pain inflicted by the wealthy. It provides scapegoats. White supremacy, Nazism, misogyny are all systems of oppression that grant one group a small amount of power over other non-rich populations. It's no small coincidence that this level of overt and extreme racism has surfaced in sync with a rise in systemic economic inequality. White supremacy is the blinders used by our would-be masters to enslave all of us. Like a big, dumb bull, white supremacists are ready to murder any of us who dare to demand justice, while they ironically ready themselves for the slaughterhouse, gleefully standing in line, celebrating their self-appointed foe superiority as they wait for the butcher's axe. Martin Niemöller explained this grand con job the best. First, they came for the socialist, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionist, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. And that's what's happening. So when we were denied the right to have a January 6th commission, that's exactly what happened. We were basically being set up or the butchers acts, politically speaking. And the fact is, if the Senate doesn't have the guts to do a commission investigating the events of January 6th and leading up to it and after, then the president should, act, should formally request that the FBI do a full and thorough criminal investigation and then let the indictments fly. Because members of Congress, while immune to civil prosecution, are not immune to criminal prosecution. Let's get this done. And that's my report.
And that's it for us this week. Thank you so much for tuning in. You know, we love you guys. We will see you again next week.